Today is World Communion Sunday. Again, I, I love this Sunday. I just find it so fun to celebrate with so many Christians around the world. World Communion Sunday was started in Pittsburgh, of all places, at Shadyside Presbyterian Church. And uh, that was started, um, and within three years, it was taken on by the Presbyterian Church. At that time, um, we were not all the United Presbyterian Church. Um, But over time, more and more denominations signed on. And so there are many, many Christians in many different places that celebrate communion on this day. And so today, I want to talk about the church around the world and what I believe is God's heart for the world. I believe we serve a global God, God who cares about people, a God who cares about people in all places. And I want to cast a little bit of a vision biblically for that as we reflect on God's vision for the world and what's going on in the world. Uh, Unlike what the bulletin says, I'm going to read several different scriptures here. From the beginning of the Bible, God cares very much about people. In Genesis, God creates by speaking into existence everything except human beings. Adam is created from the dust with God's very hands. When Eve is created, she is created out of a rib of Adam. Only people in Genesis get created by God's hands. Everything else gets created by God's voice. God is hands-on with people. And out of all of, out of, all of creation, only people, only human beings, are said to be made in God's image. God's image bearers in the world. So even though you can see God pasted on a beautiful sunset, even though as the leaves are falling, you can just see God in his wonderful creation. Those are not considered to be God's image bearers as much as human beings are. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abraham and sets him aside for a purpose. Listen to this from Genesis 12. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house To the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This this call of Abraham and this idea that he will be a blessing to the nations is confirmed later. In Genesis 22 when Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac. When Abraham is willing to do that, God stops him and provides a lamb instead and affirms this call. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the stand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. From the beginning of the Bible, human beings are created in God's image, created with his very hands. Right away, Abraham is set aside to be this strong nation that will bless the rest of the nations. In the New Testament, we believe that blessing not just to be through, the bless, through Israel, but what happens in Israel? Jesus comes. And then we are brought into this covenant, as Paul says, we're engrafted in so that we as Christians are part of this blessing for the world. Let me turn to Revelation. We go to the end of the Bible now. Revelation chapter 7. 
After, uh, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When we see this picture of heaven eventually comes down to earth, we see people from all tribes and peoples and languages. People from all around the world praising God and saying this phrase, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What language do you think they were saying that in this vision of heaven? I mean, the verse before clearly says there are people from all kinds of tribes and languages. What are they saying it? You're reading it in English, but that's not what the vision was in. There was no English when this was written. Isn't it interesting to think about heaven being multilingual? The idea that just as a choir might sing with different parts, that in heaven the praise of Jesus happens in different languages. This is the vision of our God. God who cares for people, who cares for people in their groups. Who cares where you come from. Who cares about culture. Cares about times. Think about this. Jesus could have come at any time. But he comes to a particular time. He comes in the first century. He comes as a Jew, which means he looks like a Jew. And he sounds like a Jew. He speaks the languages of his day. He speaks to the issues of his day. Jesus cares very much about the entire scope of human history. He cares about all these people groups, but he chooses to enter one in particular. God cares very much. But we have a global God with a global vision to reach all nations, but a God who is also particular, who cares about particular nations and particular people groups. The fact of the matter is that our view of Christianity here in America is pretty limited. It's pretty American. And it comes from a tradition called Western Christianity. What happens in the Christian faith is it begins in one little area, Israel. Very, very teeny. And from there it spreads out. In Acts we see a person called an Ethiopian eunuch. There's somebody from Africa who happens to be there at Passover who becomes a Christian. And very early on we have Christianity in Africa. We believe, it's not proven, but we have some evidence to suggest that Thomas made his way to India. We know from our records that Paul made it all around sort of the Mediterranean area as far as Rome. And he longed to go even further. In several of his letters he mentions he wants to go to the area we would now know as Spain. See, Christianity moved from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what we see in the scriptures. What happens though, as Christianity moves out, is, it, is some things in the world begin to change. As Jerusalem is, is destroyed in 70 AD, as the Jews and the Christians there are forced to move out, more and more persecution happens to Christians, they're forced to spread out. The rise of Islam begins to divide and, and coming out from the Middle East spreads across Africa quickly. 
spreads up into Turkey as we would now know it now. And Christianity begins to become sectioned off. So you have African Christianity, which is sort of different than Eastern Christianity, which is different than European or what would be called Western Christianity. What seems to happen then is that as Western Christianity in Europe begins to expand to the new world, so does the Christian faith as they understood it. This means that for us in Western Christianity, we have several thrusts, several important things that tend to shape how we think about Christianity. Number one is the Enlightenment. In Europe, it became a big thing right around the time that the New World was being discovered. That we needed to be logical. And we needed to be scientific. And different forms of theology began. And the Reformation began. When Martin Luther nails his uh, 95 theses to the wall in, uh, in the church in Germany, it's 1517. That's the date that sort of marks the beginning of the Reformation. You may not know that date, but you may know what happened in 1492. What happened in 1492? Columbus sailed the ocean blue. We always have that as a marker for history. Right as the Reformation is beginning, right as the Enlightenment is starting to make things very logical, the new world is found. And so as the new world begins, Christianity in the new world is very much based in the ideas of Europe. Very much based on enlightenment. So what happened to the faith? The faith ceased to become, it became less and less about an experience of God and more about knowing about God. More about knowing facts about God. What else happened at that time? Well, at the time, Europe was very into colonialism. So as you see Europe sort of expand to different areas, as you see them go into the new world, what they tend to do is want to make everybody look like Europeans. So Americans are supposed to look like Europeans and Spanish people that come over here are supposed to look like Spaniards and the French are supposed to look like the French. That's why there's so much fighting in the New World. At the time, mission work and, and later mission work often looked a lot like colonialism. So missionaries would go into a place and not just try to convert people to Christianity, but they would also try to convert people to, uh, to their way of life. And so... When, when missionaries would come in, they would try to get the people to look like Europeans, to look like they were French, to look like they were Christians. Sort of got mashed together. This led to what we call Christendom. The idea that everybody should basically be Christian. That Christian was, Christianity was the dominant way of thinking. Isn't that true of us today? Don't we expect our nations to, to still have Christian values? We expect that people should come to church and we're sort of outraged that they don't all the time. We expect people who come to church to act like people who come to church. That all comes out of our European background because that's our history. But the world is changing, isn't it? Western Christianity is shrinking. Christendom is over. Christianity is just simply not the dominant idea anymore. We start new churches, but we close them at a rate that's much, much faster. That's the general trend of Western Christianity. It's true in Europe, which is even less Christian than we are today. But I want to tell you today that that is not the case all around the world. All around the world is not trapped in the understandings of Europe that we come out of. You have a handout you're going to need now called the State of Global Christianity. 
I'm not going to give you all this. I have some web addresses. I just wanted this to be in your hands so you could look it up later. It's estimated that about 32% of the world's population is considered to be Christian. Of course, that number is a little bit difficult to understand because especially in like America, look at the statistics for America. This is, uh, this is several years old. This number would be a little lower now, but it's about 2010, these records. 79.5% of Americans are Christian. How many of you think that's actually true? Think of the people that you know. You think 8 out of 10 are Christian? I tell you what that statistic is. That is 8 out of 10 people that identify themselves as Christian. What's happening in America today is fewer and fewer people, particularly fewer and fewer younger people, are playing pretend Christianity anymore. They're not claiming to be Christians when they only go to church at Christmas and Easter. 80% of America is not Christian. America would look a lot different if that was true. But 80% claim to be Christian. So I think that number should probably in reality be a lot lower. But 32%. There are around 41,000 Christian denominations and organizations. Many, many, many. These three countries you see here are the most Christian, with Brazil and Mexico being over 90%, both of them Christian. There's a lot of Christians around the world. You can see there to the right, regional distribution of Christians. The Americas represent, according to these statistics, 36.8% of American Christianity. That's what that statistic is telling you. Remember, that includes a whole bunch of people who say they're Christians that I would probably take issue that if you don't go to church and you don't look like a Christian and you don't act like a Christian and you don't believe Christian things, you're probably not actually a Christian. Sub-Sahara Africa, that's where Christianity seems to be growing the most. Christianity in the Americas and in Europe is getting smaller. And in Asia, Christianity is getting much larger. Even in the Middle East and North Africa, Christianity is growing Although it's hard to get statistics on that because in those places you're not allowed to be publicly a Christian. So statistically we don't totally know. Here's a few more ideas for you. Worldwide status of Bible translation. This comes from uh, the Wycliffe Bible Translators. There are over 6,800 languages spoken in the world today. Under 2,000 of those have no Bible and no Bible started. Imagine not being able to have the Bible in your language. One of the things they talk about is your dream language, your natural language, the language that you dream in. Imagine not having a Bible. I mean, imagine if if all we had were Spanish Bibles in this church. There are not that many people in here that are bilingual that I know of. Imagine if you didn't just have to read the Bible and understand it, but you had to read it in another language and translate it into your language and then try to understand it. How many of us take for granted that in our house we probably have multiple Bibles? And yet around the world, Christians do not have Bibles. Look over at that statistics to the right there, global people summary. One of the things that they do is they divide people into people groups. By language, by culture, by separation. And so even in Central America, for example, I know a missionary down there who's working with people that have never, ever heard about Christianity. Some of the areas around them have, but they are a tribe up in the mountains that don't really interact. There are a total number of about 16,804 people groups, of which you would be part of a very large one. 
43% of those are unreached, have basically no contact with the gospel. It's a small number of people, but for those people, there is no idea about Christianity. There's no Bible. There's no missionary in many of these places. 40% of the population would be considered unreached in the world today. This is the stat that's crazy to me, or the thing that's crazy to me. Look down at the map at the bottom. This is from a website called persecution.com. All those darker colored nations that you see there are what are called restricted nations. Where Christian faith is in some way restricted in those places. Now there are some places, like in Egypt for example, where there are churches. But in Egypt you have to get permission from the government to be a church. You have to get permission in government to buy property. You're not allowed to meet separate. So you have to go through the government. And, And in fact... In Egypt, I know I've talked to people from Egypt. And a lot of times they will have government officials in church with them to make sure their teachings are not too far off or are not too crazy or are not too anti the nation. So imagine in a a lot of these nations, bless you, in a lot of these nations, you're not allowed to worship and gather together. You can be thrown in jail in many of these countries for what you're doing right now. And in some of those countries where you can do what we're doing right now, imagine if you looked out in the crowd and you would know that there are several spies out there watching for what you do and for what you say. Many Christians in these places have to meet in the middle of the night, have to meet in storefronts or in people's basements. Many places you can't all arrive at 10.30 like we all do. You have to space it out so that no one gets suspicious that you're meeting there. You have to park around the block so that no one knows. That's a lot of nations where what we can do freely and what we can skip doing freely, they are in in danger of their very lives and livelihood. In many of these places, if you become a Christian, you'll lose your job. You'll lose relationships with family. You'll be disowned. Look at all those spots. It's not to mention so many places around the world where there is so much poverty, where you can be a Christian, but still doesn't mean you're going to have anything to eat today. See, we can learn so much from the church around the world. We need to stop being so Western in our thinking, so American in our thinking, because these Christians around the world, they're not stuck like we are. They're not enlightenment-driven Christians where what we need to know is know about God. And know about the Bible. No, these are people that are experiencing God. In Muslim nations where, where you're not allowed to share the gospel, where missionaries are not allowed in, in most cases, Christians are being saved through the radio that gets, gets sent in from other nations. Christians in Muslim nations are having dreams about Jesus. Over here, when you say you have a dream about Jesus, we start calling doctors for you. But over there... That's how Christians are being saved. In Africa, they're having so many more experiences of God giving them prophecy. When we talk about prophecy over here, it's like, no, this is a Presbyterian church. We don't do prophecy here. We can find you a church that does that, but not here. Our Christianity is way too based in knowing about God and not enough in really experiencing God. I think we can learn from the church around the world. I think it's also interesting to me that the church around the world isn't trying to look like a European church. Churches are springing up in Africa and the music and worship is African. 
and their speech is African, and the way they talk about Jesus is African, what would it mean for us as a church in western Pennsylvania today to consider what it means to be a church in western Pennsylvania today? God has called us not just to any time, but to this particular time. I wish I was here when the church pews were more full, when more and more people went to church, when our society was a little different, but I'm not. I'm a pastor, and you're a person in church today. And not just any church, you're in this church at this time in this place. What does it mean for us to discern God's will for our church today? We can learn a lot from the church around the world And I think it's time as a church, time for us as Christians to have more care and concern for those around the world, to pray for those who are going through other things, to remember Christians that are persecuted for things we take for granted for. I think that will strengthen our church, and I think that will strengthen our faith. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you have blessed us. Lord, we know that where we live and the things that we take for granted are a blessing. We remember today those who don't have those same blessings. Keep us mindful. Give us a global vision for what you have done for the world in Jesus Christ. And give us the discernment to understand what that looks like for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.